0: Welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast where we dive into the many facets of organizational culture. My name is Subhu Kalpati. I'm a talent, leadership and organizational development professional. My guest today has a fascinating career arc. Aparna Piramal Rajay has worn a variety of hats, including that of a business leader, journalist, author, educator and public speaker. For well over a decade, she profiled not just the workspaces of CEOs, but also corporate offices of multinational firms, the government, and startups for her mint column head office. She's the author of two books, Working Out of the Box, and most recently, Chemical Kitchery. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the big shifts in the world of work, workplace design, the evolution of leadership styles, and mental health advocacy. Aparna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me um i want to begin um, aparna by asking a little bit about your background uh, and this is the first time we are meeting of course so um your background as you know a journalist writer educator uh, and public speaker you've you've done so much um right and um, as as we were just speaking as i was going through your work i realized i realized that um, you know there are uh, there's a lot of your work that i had already read and i was just connecting the dots in my mind while i was doing that and it cuts through a variety of fields such as you know design thinking leadership um, and of course, your latest book now with Chemical Khichdi, uh, Mental Health Advocacy as well. So how, how you know, looking back, how did it all come together? How did you land up uh, uh, to where you are today? Um, and what have been some key milestones for you? Maybe we can start there.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess like a lot of us, all of this is very unplanned. <laughs> yeah.
0: um,
1: I, I think that um, the way I would probably like to define myself or introduce myself is what Somebody said about me, which uh, was very nice to hear, which is that uh, she said, "Aparna, you're igniting a lot of important conversations that are ahead of their time, mm. and uh, many of these conversations are around intangibles, and um, and she said that you know you put a lot of frameworks into thinking about abstract things. Mm. Um, so I think that's what I try and do now in my work, whether that's through writing or speaking or teaching. Um, but really, in terms of lives, I would say I've had three lives. Um, I've had one life as of working in my family business and working in business so I've been to Harvard Business School, yeah. I was the CEO of, a, of our family's furniture business uh, in my you know, late 20s so that was a really great general management opportunity for me to be running a company at that time mm-hmm. um, and that, this was about 20 years ago. Um, and so I've had this sort of conventional business career in that sense. Uh, but then I switched to writing about 15 years ago. Um, and that was something that was partly planned and unplanned. And we can talk about it. But um, I've always enjoyed doing that. Um, and I started writing a column on workplaces and design and leadership yeah. back in 2008. And I did that for 15 years. I just stopped doing that recently. I also wrote for the UK's Financial Times during on, on uh, design. And really, I've been looking at design thinking in the context of business, in the context of workplaces, in the context of cities, mm. just to kind of um try and make a business audience or a non design audience interested in this area. That was the attempt. Um, and my first book, which was working out of the box, that came out in 2015. Mm. Um, and I've also been an educator during this time where I teach a class called Netflix and the Art of Design Writing. Yep. It's a really fun thing that I do. I've been doing that for five years. Um, And now the third life really has been about mental health because I've lived with a mental health condition for the last uh, 20 odd years. And so I had this book, Chemical Chemical Kitchery, which came out uh, in May last year. So there's been these three things, uh, a business career, business. And then, you know, because I was interested in workplaces, I started getting into design because I was then interested in design and empathy. I think the mental health piece started. So all of them had these connections to each other.
0: Um, So one, um, you know, uh, first kind of question, broad question for you to kick off this conversation is um, from all of your research, uh, and also your, you know, uh, practice in business, um, right, uh, through all of these years, through these uh, past couple of decades, um, you've worked with CEOs, you've also worked with business leaders, um, you've profiled them, you've researched, and you've also had an opportunity to, um, you know, work with them. So if I were to ask you to reflect on the world of work, um, as we as as it stands today, and Uh, how it may have shifted, um, say, in the last couple of decades. Uh, Where do you think the big shifts are?
1: Yeah, I mean it's a very broad question, and it's interesting mm. to be able to reflect on that, right? Um, I would say that first, let's look at the drivers of change, and um, if you just pick up, I mean there are many of them, but the three big ones that I think um have really been game changers for me has obviously been technology, the shifting role of technology, mm. the pandemic, which has been a huge uh, game changer for the workplace, and then just for India, really being part of the global economy, you know. Mm. So how how that has really changed in the last twenty years, I think the time where you know since we would have started our careers and we we would have seen that change happen mm. so i think um, what what that means was the way work what how that has resulted in changing work is that first i think the definition of collaboration has has really changed mm. you know it's gone from collaboration being something that happened in a big boardroom or in one or two isolated meeting rooms that were sort of scattered to something that is really a way of life and whether that's happening today in a uh, sort of remote working setup in a living room or in your office, uh, home office, um, whether it's happening in small spaces around the campus. I think that, you know, the idea that we are coming to work to collaborate and Mm -hmm. the expressions of that on a daily basis are looking very, very different because of the way technology has changed. Um, So I think that that emphasis of the we in the office um, has 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 really started looking very, very different. And the yeah. wor- workplace where we think of we and, and think of how we meet and how we collaborate is, is hugely different. Um, the second is also, there's also the me element, right? So yeah. I think that being part of the global economy now, I think the standards for, how you think of organizations and you know, you think of the workplace. You, the, the me part has really changed. There's a lot more emphasis on well being amenities, uh, much mm-hmm. better technology at work. You know, even just workstations are much better. I'm not talking now of. Every organization, I mean, a lot of organizations are under cost and budget pressure. So you'll still find loads, even the companies that I've profiled, many of them are just really pokey offices, which are not very well ventilated. But the point is, if you look at the landscape of work, I think what we imagine to be a really good office and the way we work and coming to work, um, I think this whole emphasis on just providing a good, the the me part of it, as well as the we part of it, both both need to be balanced. Mm -hmm. And... I think just the other part is that, you know, global standards means that we are working at a different level of speed now. I think work in itself, in its nature of intensity, competitive activity, you know, the pressure on margins, the pressure on deliverables, the pressure on deadlines. Mm -hmm. um, I just think the nature of work has changed tremendously in, in the last. I don't think anybody would have said you know even 100 years ago that work was not stressful but i think mm-hmm. the, the nature of global activity has really meant that we're all working and and i think that means that that puts a lot of pressure on teams to to work in a certain way and again it cascades back into how we think of collaboration so these were uh, these are some of the very broad trends that i would i would see
0: um the v i like the v versus me uh, framework already uh, which is that uh, you know especially in a hybrid work environment i think we tend to focus uh, I, I tend to focus on either one or the other a little too much. And it's important to get that right balance. Um, I was just thinking of that while, um, you know, while you were stating that. So thanks for that. That's a, a great way of looking at things. Um, I want to, um, you know, talk about your, uh, your column, because it's been around for a long time. And I've been reading it over the last many years, although you wind winded it down this, uh, this year, uh, wound it down this year. So you know you've you've profiled not just workspaces of ceos but also entire corporate offices of uh, large firms small firms uh, government offices so uh, startup workspaces so it's it's quite you know the the breadth and the depth of work is is, is quite, um, uh, quite quite interesting in the way that you've profiled them so looking back are there any kind of workspace designs that really you know stood out for you uh, right and again we're talking about work so uh, and why would that be
1: Yeah. So again, coming back to this whole idea of frameworks, I mean, I think after doing all these interviews, so just to give your uh, listenership an idea, I think in my main head office column, where we looked at CEOs, and Mm -hmm. we tried to make this connection between CEOs and their work style and their workspaces, I looked at over 100 CEOs in in Mm -hmm. that column over the time. And then we also looked at office reviews, where we we featured more the organization. So I think collectively, there were over 200 stories over that time period on on design or 200, 200 stories. So there was quite a lot of data. Um, And I think that's what I've really seen is that there's a huge link between the intangible and the tangible. Mm. So really, what's happening is that, you know, an organization is making an investment into a physical office, which is a tangible investment, into furniture, into space, into uh, real estate, into technology. Um, And it's one of the biggest kind of capex expenditures for most organizations nowadays, which are in the service sector, even even mm-hmm. companies that have a manufacturing uh, arm to it, like the, the real estate they put into the office is a huge no. uh, investment. Um, and the at the end of the day, you're making this investment into a tangible space because you want some intangible outcome to come out of it, right? Sure. I mean, the companies today are really valued on the basis of their intangibles, right? Mm. So I think what I tried to do was to draw that connection between the tangible workspace and the intangible assets that were coming out, right. and I really found that there was four kind of archetypes. So I'll, I'll just take you through them. Sure. So the first is you know offices that are essentially very nourishing offices that are all about Where the intangible asset is the personal energy, the personal energy of the person leading it, Mm. um, usually is what I looked at. You know, because we're looking at CEO offices, so these are typically like enclosed spaces, very conventional corner offices. You know, where there's a lot of emphasis on art or light or you know overall decor, and it's a it's a very very nourishing space. Mm. Uh, The second type is where offices are really about building an organization you know the ceo has said that let's use the office as a way to build a more democratic a more open plan a more collaborative a more accessible space mm. and very often the ceo decides not to sit in their own cabin but they sit in in the open office alongside everyone else we see this a lot with the startup culture for example right. you know so those are very much what i call the building office and then the third type is the communicating office where the ceo says that let's use the space as a narrative medium to tell a story about the brand, about the company. So you'll see this, for example, in a lot of like a Dream 11 or a, you know, a sports office where they have a lot of themes and mm-hmm. they have a lot of uh, kind of spaces where people can ex- you know, experience the brand. But also you see it in very simple tech companies which have very creative graphics, for example. They can't afford all this kind of you know really interesting kind of branding, but they have very simple graphics. So it, essentially we're saying we're looking at the space and the asset that's being created is the brand. Mm -hmm. And the space is a narrative medium to to share the story of the brand through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we look at offices which look at uh, space from the point of view of the environment um, and sustainability. So this is the sustaining office, you know, the office that really says that, look, this is a resource that we have and let us use this resource wisely. So the materials used to build it, um, you know, I mean, I've seen really sort of extreme examples where somebody has built an entire greenhouse in their office. This is Kamal Mehtal in mm-hmm. Delhi. They've built an entire greenhouse in their office because they want to, uh, you know, improve the indoor air quality. Right. Uh, for their, for for themselves, for their people. So I think that's when they really take environment very seriously. So these are the four, whether you're taking the personal energy of the promoter or the founder, whether you're really looking at the organization and their needs, whether you're looking at a branded space and looking at what that communicates, and the four is this sustaining kind of um, environmental, they're not exhaustive. I mean, they're right. not they're not ex- exhausted, they're not exclusive also, you can have bits of them, but I think yeah. it just tells you where the CEO, you you know, when you walk in, you can use this as a way to say that, okay, what is the real priority for this organization? You know, mm. what, what are they really trying to do through this space? What mm. are they really investing in? And it, is it about people? Is it about the promoter? Is it about the environment? Is it about the brand? So it's, it's one way of looking at these spaces.
0: Fascinating. Um, thanks for laying it out I have um, I think it's a perfect segue for my next question um, Aparna which is that uh, you know this podcast is of course about culture and um, you touched upon it very nicely through these four archetypes that you just uh, laid out Um, but um, we've we've rarely ever gone into details of physical office design when I've been speaking to my guests on this podcast. So uh, I have the perfect opportunity here, uh, which is that, uh, you know, have you observed any kind of correlation between, let's say, the way that an office is designed, uh, how it feels, um, right? Uh, and how what kind of effect it may have on, you know, things like employee morale or culture or performance, uh, etc. Right? Uh, have, you, have you seen any uh, examples or data uh, around that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think data around uh, happiness in the office is is really hard to capture because um, there are, you know, loads of companies put out these satisfaction surveys and, yeah. and things like that and who knows if the employee is saying the right thing or not and how they've shifted and companies will say they've shifted and I think what we look at more qualitative measures about is it easier to hire people mm-hmm. uh, to into the space after you've moved into the office? Uh, do you like to bring your clients into the space? You know, um, right. what is the nature what is the quality of conversations that are happening in this space mm-hmm. as a result of the space and how we think about it what is the quality of the output that is happening so I think you know those are the kind of questions that are probably more meaningful and definitely there's uh there is a huge correlation now whether that's uh, what that you know what that ROI figure is I I, I really even after all these years I, I would hesitate to put that down but I mm-hmm. would I would just say that you know in today's day and age uh, it depends on the aspiration of the company and where they want to go and so if you are really coming back to this framework if you're looking at an organization that is really investing in its people so let's say i took a, i looked at a consulting firm bcg mm-hmm. um and they really invested in a very world-class office. I mean, it was if you walk into their BCG gurgaon office and you walk into anywhere else in the world, I don't imagine it'd be very different because yeah. they really spent a lot of time thinking what does the business of thought require? You mm. know, what kind of spaces does it require? What kind of uh, amenities does it require? You know, what is the life of a typical BCGer? And mm. they use that design thinking, which right. they use their practice. They also used on their people, you know. And um, I think they did that in a pretty structured way and they were able to come out with certain ideas for the space that made it make it very efficient and uh, hopefully results in better work for them. But it's 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 a really it's a really good space. So I think definitely uh, there's a huge con- there's a there's a huge impact. Um, and I think it's a bit like saying, you know, like it's a bit like saying that if you if you're sitting in a non- comfortable chair, you won't notice it. But mm-hmm. if you're sitting in an uncomfortable chair, you will notice it. So, yeah. with, with with design, really, the costs of bad design
0: mm-hmm.
1: are very evident, and the benefits of good design may not always be evident. You yeah. know. So yeah. I think it's important to give it that thought.
0: Yeah, that's so true. In fact, um, a thought that comes to mind is that um, you know, like you said, right? BCG has thought about uh, uh, designing an office space which empowers people to think better like the business of thought is 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 what they are in so therefore rrp you know does it get our people to think better and therefore perform better in the way that we want to um so if if leaders and ceos design their workspaces keeping the kind of culture that they want to promote in the organization then you know that's uh, because physical workspace again makes such a difference in in the way that you work Uh, even personally i was also thinking about the fact that i work from home remotely all the time but you know the moment i step out and go to let's say a coffee shop i can immediately you know feel the difference in my way of thinking uh, because i'm sitting in a different environment and working uh, in that space which which wasn't the case i may be more productive or more creative uh, it's a function of where i'm sitting and working at that point in time so i was just reflecting on that while you were telling me that you know, I want to shift a focus, uh, shift focus a little bit uh, towards uh, leadership styles, um, right? Because you've also worked with uh, so many leaders in your work um, uh, through the last couple of decades. You've profiled leaders across organizations, across generations, also, right? You've you've profiled young leaders, uh, young founders, established leaders, uh, large organizations, small. So. Coming to leadership styles, um, do you think there is a shift or there's an evolution um, that's happening or has it evolved over the years? Or do you think as it's, you know, are we putting too much into it? Or do you think it's stayed the same? And maybe the differences are too minute? What's what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, again, I have an acronym for you. <laughs> hmm. I think that um, I think the sort of business of being a leader probably hasn't changed in the sense that you have to do what according to me, these five things, which I'll just share in a minute, but Mm. I think probably the expression of that has changed, you know, how you do them, uh, what, how you use the space around you in particular is what I look at, but how do you do these things? So I, I said that, like, you know, I call it like being in the driver's suite. So you're not like in the C-suite. If you are in the C-suite, we all know the C-suite. But I said leadership is a bit like driving a car. Okay. Like you you need to, when you first learn to drive a car, you have to pay attention to five different things. you got to play accelerator, brake, clutch, mirrors, you know, rear view mirror and traffic outside and your blind spots, whatever. Like you, you've got to pay attention to all these five things. Right. Yeah. And and when you're a novice, you're you're trying to, just master all of them so that you can then successfully and smoothly drive a car. So as I said, if you use the same metaphor, I figured after looking at all these CEOs, is that there, there are really five things that are very, very important to being in a leadership position. You don't have to be a CEO of a large company, but you know, if you're leading anything, leading a small unit or small business, you're running even a retail outfit and you know, and then you but but you need to be paying attention to these. Hmm. So the first, uh, this is so the acronym is drive. And okay. The first thing is uh, D stands for decisions. I think that, you know, fundamentally, when I speak to CEOs, they say they, they need to take decisions. They're, they're there to take decisions um, about everything, right? About whether hiring, strategy, people, financing things. That They're really ta- there to take a decision. Um, and really what's changed in the, that expression of that decision is how are you doing that now? Like, are, are you sort of... Um, Uh, are you just doing that decision making by yourself? Are you doing it with people? How are you? uh, What technology are you using to facilitate that decision making? So somebody like uh, Chandra, uh, Mr. Chandra, who runs Tara Sons, talked very clearly about how he just wanted to minimize the amount of email that was coming in, Mm. because he didn't want to be surrounded by, you know, reading emails the whole time rather than and he wanted to be taking decisions. So he restructured the kind of communication that was happening. He also obviously complemented this by staying in touch with people through different ways, not through email. Mm -hmm. You know, so he was the first person that I met and first person for this whole series. And in 2010, you know, so many years, 10 years before COVID, he was telling me how he was doing video conferencing twice, thrice a day, Mm -hmm. you know. So 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 so, I think that decision making using technology and using communication to facilitate decision making is a new age way of working, which perhaps was not there earlier, mm-hmm. where maybe a lot of decision making was still solo. And I think in a lot of promoter led businesses, possibly it still is solo, you know, so I think that that's one change. The second is R, which is about relationships. Mm-hmm. And really, that's the second most important and tangible that we're dealing with is how do you manage these relationships, right? So I just gave an example of uh, how Mr. Chandra does that. Um, but other people like through spaces that I just talked about, are they open? Are they more closed? How do you manage those relationships? Yeah. The third part, the I, is the ideas. Now, so this is actually something that I came across that not ideas are not actually a big part of a CEO's job. You know, they are there more to like execute and ideas of of, of, of a small part, but it's really those ideas that animate what they do on a larger basis. And I think the real shift that has happened is that the ideas in leadership are no longer this image of a CEO sitting in the ivory tower and Mm -hmm. coming up with a 10,000 foot vision and then presenting that vision to everyone. I think that is the image of leadership that we would have had maybe 30 years ago, you know, maybe we go to business school, and you think of that long term strategic vision, I don't think leaders are sitting in that isolated way, the ideas that they're having now for the businesses are more motivated by purpose, or, mm. you know, more, more, and perhaps a bit more short term in nature, you mm. know, so I think, and they're more driven by external factors. So I think that the again, the whole, the the perception of how CEOs come up with strategy and ideas has changed. That's mm. one. And then values, um, you know, uh, again, that's you're very important. We, nobody disputes that, but actually being able to live those values, right? Yeah. So, so having the, again, expression of that, you actually, every office you walk into has loads of their value statements and values plastered everywhere. But actually being able to live that is when you sort of spend some time with them. Do you understand that if they're really living that? Yeah. And finally, the last thing was in terms of leadership was energies. So um, this was the one thing that I found that was quite surprising for me, actually, was that we tend to think that leadership is so much about um, having, you know, this really hectic schedule, but uh, working these long hours, traveling, having a lot of pressures, and then having, you know, other engagements on top of that. But I really found that most of the leaders that I met had some time for themselves. So coming back to the we and the me, you know, they yeah. they made a lot of me time and they had actual rituals for that. It could be in the form of music, art, fitness was a big one obviously, um but it could be you know uh, reading or many other activities. They were actually making time for that. So I think finding spaces in your life, sites and spaces where you can nourish your energies was important. So Just going back to decisions, relationships, ideas, values, energies, I think these are always the things that people have to juggle and we, you know, all of these are, some are important to us, Some each one differs in their importance to each person. And -hmm. the important thing is how do you kind of align them all and so you have that smooth drive so that right. even when there are bumps you can kind of manage it you know so i'm sorry that's a long-winded answer to your question
0: <laughs> you No, know, i i love it uh i'm going to steal this with pride and use it in my next conversation so that, thanks for sharing that um, Aparna. um my next follow-on question on this uh topic um, Aparna is is uh, linked to the last uh, uh you know last part of your acronym which is the e uh the energies um, and because you've worked so much um on on design and design thinking, uh, one of the pillars of design thinking is, of course empathy. And um you know, I've had this hypothesis in my mind for a while, um which is that people who practice design thinking, especially leaders who very consciously do it in their business, uh, who really listen to their customers, um they also tend to strive for an empathetic workplace. it It also reflects in their culture. um is that is that a fair hypothesis to make, or am I stretching myself too thin by? Uh, you know, making that statement. What's your take on this?
1: Yeah, I don't know which comes first, though. I think possibly there is a correlation. I wouldn't disagree with that. But whether they care for their um, employees, because they are design thinkers, or do they become design thinkers, because mm. they care for their employees to begin with, you know, like it's really, I, I I, wouldn't have enough of a data set to kind of extract which comes first. But then, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. So I think you had also mentioned this um, MD of Walkaroo, you know, yes. you know from Coimbatore. Um, He has a lot of empathy uh, in, in his business. His business is extremely customer-led, like they're coming up with literally designs every day to compete mm-hmm. in the footwear market um you know which is which which is in the mass footwear market which you wouldn't realize how competitive that is and uh, so they're doing that but he also has a lot of empathy for his workforce and for his staff but i think possibly he might just be that kind of person you know i think that he just has these so that they they sort of flow naturally like or if you take somebody like uh, Parizad Zorabian of um, Zorabian Poultry, Mm. I mean, she did a really almost heroic acts during um, COVID where, you know, she she really um, started, she was expressing a lot of gratitude and maintaining a gratitude journal Mm. uh, for her employees, understanding that it was tough for them to come back into the business this is not a very this is a kind of sme kind of business run out of mumbai um but she really put herself in the front line and she was also um really doing a lot to engage employees and expressing her happiness her gratitude for lead, you know for, for surviving in this kind of crisis mm-hmm. um so i think she's just that kind of person she's the only Um, CEO that I've met who took me on a tour of the office introducing me to everybody along the way while I was having the tour here so and so and here so and so and here so -so, through a video camera you know and we and so she's just a very people-oriented person right Right. so I think some people are just more people-oriented and that makes them naturally empathetic and that makes them good to think about design and maybe some people come from a more intellectual viewpoint and say that yeah, you know, we are doing this for our customers. So let's do it for our people. I got the sense that the BCG was a bit like that, that we mm-hmm. use this a lot so much in our uh, customer as a practice. So let's do this for um, our people also. But mm-hmm. I think, um, I think, yeah, it, it, it works both ways, I think.
0: Um, it also talks to a concept that I heard about some time ago called the shadow of the leader and how it falls on your business and, you know, on your people. And therefore, how does it play out in your, um, another example that came to mind while you were explaining, uh, Parna is Taylor Swift. Um, she is with the rarest tour examples of how she has been so kind to her people and how she's given away bonuses uh, to her employees. Anyway, you know, I was just thinking about those, um, that particular point while you were explaining Parizad's uh, story. Um, so thanks for that, um. I want to shift focus once again a little bit. Um, and there's so much to talk. I think each section I can probably do an hour long conversation with you. But I know the time is of the essence. So I'm going to shift focus um, and talk a little bit about your book, um, which released last year called Chemical Khichdi. You've shared um, your personal story uh, right in the book. And first of all, thanks for writing that. Um, it's It's such an important topic um right uh, and i um it doesn't get spoken about nearly as much but uh, you know the fact that you've written it i think is is great and um i want to ask you because you know the work uh, that i saw in your book the the new book is is different from what you've done in the past right so what prompted you to write this book and you know uh how did you get to writing uh chemical khichdi Aparna?
1: yeah so thanks for asking that question and thank you for um your uh nice words um i think that uh well you know i've been living with bipolarity ever since i was about 24 years old um it wasn't fully diagnosed until my 30s but in, but you know i I've, I've been living with it in some shape or form having these mood swings mm-hmm. uh which uh in case your listeners don't know but just they vary from sort of extreme euphoria or mania um to depression and both with, with obviously not lots of normal phases in between the yeah. normal phases can be from months to years also. Um, but so I've been living with these for a while and I knew that I wanted to write something about it. Um, but it took me a while to kind of get the clarity I needed to do that, you know, uh, to, to write the book. Um, I think the writing is just my way of making sense of the world around me. I think it just is a very normal impulse to be able to think of the world around me and to write about it, whether that's office spaces or whether that's uh, my mental health. And in both of these cases, I guess I thought that neither of these subjects were talked about a lot. So right. <laughs> you know, talk about it. But I, I definitely wanted to make uh, share my story. Um, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I really like the frameworks that you've laid out in the book. And I couldn't uh, agree more while we were opening the conversation, you said that, you know, the frameworks, I couldn't agree more. I especially love the concepts of um, love therapy and work therapy and several others, but these two kind of stood out for me Uh, and how mental health is a team sport, um, right? And um, how the the support that you get from those around you is so critical. Could you talk a little bit about these couple of concepts? I think it'll be interesting to hear from you directly uh, about these two.
1: Yeah, so I think I defined uh, seven therapies because the idea of the book was to give people some suggestions as to where and how they could improve their own mental health. It's certainly not a prescription. I keep saying it's an invitation for people to think about their own mental well-being and find some cues. But yes, love therapy is very, very important. It's the role of the caregivers. Mm. And this book is as much for caregivers as it is for people who are living with a mental health condition. And in fact, a lot of people... Uh, have come written to me. Caregivers have written to me and said that we it's helped us to understand the people around us. You know, yeah. um, and so this idea of love therapy is just saying that you know, it, having acceptance from the people around you who are caring for you and having their empathy, their compassion, their patience um, is is just so important. And it talks really about the different roles that people can play, whether if you are a sibling, if you're a partner, if you're a parent, even if you're a child, uh, what what is it that you can do if your loved one is living with something like this? Mm. So it's just saying that, uh, acknowledging also that it's pretty hard work for a caregiver, yep. there's a lot of burnout, um, but uh, how, how really uh, we can arrive at a situation where that you know people can leave kind of they can lead the lives they want to leave and and be find fulfillment and meaning like i've been in a really good place now for over five years mm-hmm. but i haven't had any of these extremes um and i've kind of learned to live with it so that i think love therapy has been critical for that
0: yeah uh, okay and, yeah good
1: and for you asked about work therapy also right? yes
0: yes yeah So
1: work therapy is that little um Surprising one, I guess, because for most of us, work is not therapeutic, right? Work, people think of as being stressful. And, um, and certainly work for me was stressful and work related stress has caused me to have these manic episodes, whether I was working for my family business, or even when I was working for writing for the mint, because I would just take on too much, I would get stressed by deadlines would stress me out. And I would just kind of go like a tornado higher and higher and higher and just finally kind of just implode. So Mm -hmm. I think work has been extremely stressful. But I think work has also been really important to my identity and my sense of self. Mm -hmm. It may not be the case for everyone, but it was for me. And so figuring out how to have that right balance between taking work from being a stressor to work being therapeutic um, has been one of the biggest journeys that I've been on. But it's been really important for the workplace to acknowledge that also. Yeah, yeah. As as my as my coworkers and my colleagues and my bosses did, you know, mm-hmm. especially at the mint um and especially at the university where I teach where I had really open conversations with them once I had been diagnosed yeah. and you know that I I have this diagnosis and this is what I need from you and this is what I would, you know, like how can how can we work together to make this work for both of us. Right. And you know, and that conversation, I think, I was very fortunate to have because um, not everyone uh, gets to gets to have that level of open dialogue. But it really changed the way I felt. You know, because I felt that until then, I could, I was open with my fr- friends and family, but I was not open, you know, at myself and we ha- at work. And now we have this whole thing of bring your authentic self to yeah. work, own your truth, and you know, be yourself, and all that. So. This is important. It's important. It's a two-way conversation that's really important to have.
0: Mm. Yeah. And like you said, it's it's not the norm yet uh, at the workplace to talk about such things. And uh, you, know, you don't know what will happen if you go and tell your bosses or your managers, at least in your case, it worked out. You did have people around you who supported you, which brings me to the next question, um, Aparna, which is what is it that organizations can do? What is it that leaders, managers can do to become better allies, better supporters, um, right? And how do we do this work together, and not just leave it to people, um, you know, who are struggling with this? And uh, how do we do that? And any examples that you might want to share from your work that you might have seen of leaders doing this well?
1: Yeah, I must say, you know, that's like a big question for me, I have to say the only disappointment with Chemical Khichdi was that People didn't see it as being relevant, you know, so relevant to the corporate workplace. I I thought I'd get a lot more engagement with companies around Mm. it. And I I did have some, it's not that I didn't, but um, I just think, I think let's understand this, you know, I'll take a few minutes just to Mm -hmm. sort of outline this. See, I think what's happening for companies is that um, they're under a whole bunch of pressure. Okay. Uh, They're under a lot of kind of, you know, business pressure. Right. And obviously they pass it on to their employees um, and they would like their employees to perform. So there are two or three um, direct headwinds in in the face of workplace mental health the first is that companies all want to project themselves as great places to work mm-hmm. you know they they fill out those surveys and they're looking out for those awards they, that's how they market themselves and HR people are tasked with you know attracting and recruiting talent based on these kind of surveys and awards yeah. so for them then to stand up and then say that look actually forty percent of our workforce or thirty percent of our workforce is suffering from burnout stress mm-hmm. overwork exhaustion is 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 very counterintuitive for for companies to to do that right and the second thing is that there is a tendency in the organization to say that if you know we are getting stressed out we are passing it on to employees now it's up to the employee to cope with it like that's, you know, let's go for like a yoga class or let's organize, you know, meditation sessions. Oh, so it's not really yeah. our problem, right? So when I say mental health is a team sport, we actually, I've actually constructed yet another framework of uh, how uh, the different, you know, stakeholders in an organization can come together. For workplace well-being, right, and collectively. So, what is what is it that a manager can say and do versus a colleague or a team member, mm-hmm. versus the individual person, versus the leader, versus the you know the HR person or the organization as a whole? So, there, there's actually more nuance to it. But mm-hmm. you need to have leaders who are prepared to have this conversation. And what's happening, unfortunately, is that I feel and I, you know that a lot of the leaders who are, let's say, in a certain generation just don't see this as an issue or like yeah. they have gone through it, whatever stress that they have gone through, they go through with a lot of stoicism and resilience. Yeah. Whereas the youngsters are not going to put up with this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They want, they don't want to work on the weekends. Mm. You know, I have a colleague with me who will tell me like, if it's urgent, then reach out to me. But otherwise I'm not looking at your messages over the weekend, Aparna. Right. very clearly, right. you know, so there's a different generational gap. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean to say that everybody in the young in the young generation has got anxiety or depression, but they're just being more open about it, right? So I don't mm-hmm. think people fully understand. And, and then there are people like us in the middle who are you know listening to both sides. Right. So I think that there's generational issues, there's branding issues, if you like, or perception issues relating to the stigma, of course, there's a stigma. And then there's this tendency of who is actually responsible mm-hmm. for emotional and mental health and the well-being. So it's actually quite a complicated topic, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think that unfortunately, it's if you leave it just to human resources, it's not fair to do that. Also, yeah. it, it needs to become like a, a strategic issue and a leadership issue. Mm. you know um, and uh, it's it's not fair just to say, let HR deal with it mm. you know um, and do these. So I, uh, to be honest, have not found many companies that have engaged with it at a strategic level. Okay. You know, a lot of companies have helplines, which are very underutilized. They do webinars, yeah. uh, but really saying that, look, we how do we tackle this as a leadership issue? Mm. I, I don't see companies, maybe it's just early on, you know, for us to be having that conversation. Mm. And um, so, I mean, what can they do? Like, they can, first of all, you know, I think, first of all, acknowledge that this is not a diversity and equality issue this is actually something that affects the whole workforce at some point yeah. or the other you're yeah. going to deal with people who want more flexibility in their lives who are going through something who you know who are going through burnout and can we just look at it from a sort of really hr strategic hr issue or a business performance issue you know mm. and and to recognize that really productivity and performance and psychological safety and predictability all go together mm. you know? so I think it's just about having that vocabulary. Mm. So I think what they can, I think if leaders start sharing their own stories of vulnerability and resilience, that's amazing. At right. one of the sessions that I did, I think it was for Godridge. Uh, okay. One of the leaders actually stood up and says, "I go to therapy," you know, which, which is you don't hear in the Indian context, right? Mm. Somebody standing up and and saying that. So, um, I think hopefully, I'm hopeful we'll get there. Let's see. It's a <laughs> it's a long
0: journey. <laughs> Um, yeah, and like you said, right? It it takes it takes collective effort, and uh, it needs to be seen as a performance issue and a strategic issue for leadership to be able to really wake up and um, you know do something about it, and not just tick the boxes and say that you know we have a helpline or we have a platform, uh, and move beyond that and make it. Um, yeah. I mean, it I'll
1: I'll, yeah. I'll share a joke just to kind of make it lighter. You know, it's like yeah. this joke, right? That twenty senior leaders are doing a health checkup, and the results come back. And out of the 20, uh, only two people are there who don't have like a chronic health issue. So everybody else has, you know, diabetes or cholesterol or blood pressure or something like that. So HR looks at the results and and what does it do? Do you want to guess what it does?
0: I have no idea. You have to enlighten me on this one.
1: (laughs) So HR's response is to actually sack the other two because they're like, they're not working really hard enough.
0: <laughs> That's a really dark joke, Aparna, but it, <laughs> it hit the spot, <laughs> made the point. <laughs> uh, okay, so yes. I just, yeah. I mean, we
1: have that mindset, right? That we yeah. have to work hard, bosses have to be tough, toxic, right. work, workplaces are okay. Yeah. Like just put the danda. like we, we we have that mindset. And so until we shift that mindset, it's, it's really going to be difficult to, you know, say that we need to be thinking about empathy and psychological safety and
0: kind of words. Yeah, sure. No, I was, um, you're right. And the the language has to shift. I think consciously people have to think about this more strategically. I was listening to this other podcast where, you know, there was an example that was shared where the leader said, and I was really taken aback, uh, said that, you know, it's okay if my people lag a little bit behind schedule, but I want I want them to do it in a way that they are engaged and they are productive. Um, it's okay if it work gets delayed by a day or two, it's fine. It's not like my company is going to shut down because of it. But I know my people are happy and engaged because I'm giving them their, you know, which was a very refreshing take on, you know, just the driving performance culture that you usually get to hear about. Um, yeah. Right. So.
1: No, I think it's really important because I remember interviewing um, a youngster at one of these large tech companies based in Bangalore. And she just said, what is the point? Like if I deliver my results and in the process, I'm getting through, hugely stressed, how can that be called productive? Mm. You know. So I think this, you know, I think we need to sort of get to a stage. I would love it if we can get to a stage where we can see that performance is a function of uh, productivity and predictability and psychological safety it's not that something like psychological safety and uh productivity are at odds with each other
0: yeah yeah
1: I certainly have become in my own life, 100 times more productive than what I was when I was unwell. When I was unwell five years ago, I was losing two to three months in a year, I would say to my illness, recovering Mm -hmm. from it, going through it, coming back. And I was just not progressing year on year, right? Now, in terms of everything that has happened in the last five years, things are just just much, much, much better.
0: Great, um, Aparna. So I have one last section before I let you go, um, which is what I call the rapid fire round um and what i do in this uh, section aparna is that i ask a series of you know it's just a series of words that i throw at you and you say the first thing that comes to your mind um right and feel free to follow up with you know if you need to explain or whatever feel free um so that's what we'll do are you are you game should we do this
1: yeah let's let's do it
0: okay so the first word um, coming your way design thinking essential creativity way of life workspaces
1: Questionable.
0: Okay, organizational culture.
1: Most important. Leadership. Inaction.
0: Um, okay, mental health. Oxygen. Advocacy. Vital. Fantastic! Thank you for playing along. <laughs> you did well. I hope that was fun for you. Uh, yeah. When you said "in action" for leadership, did you mean "in action" or like "in action"? One word.
1: No, no, not "not in action." I mean, you, I meant we should see leadership in action. Like, oh, like it's Important, not just the talk. Walk the talk, basically.
0: I see. Okay, so be the role model. Do what yeah. you say. Yeah. Um, workspaces. You had a very interesting uh, response to that, um, right? So. Uh, what was that? I I forget, but you said something very interesting. Questionable. I, questionable. Why did you say questionable?
1: Yeah, because I think I think we're all thinking so differently about workspaces. Companies want us to come back to work. People don't want to come back to work. People don't want to commute. You know, uh, I think the whole question, there's a, there's a lot of uh, questioning the very basis of the workplace. I do believe that collaboration is important. Sure. But I also think that, you know, a lot of opportunities like a lot of companies can now do, do a substantial amount of work outside and then, then you have these people telling us that we have to work 70 hours a week and things yeah. like that you yeah. know so yeah. um, I, I think that I think there's a lot of maybe questioning rather than questionable I is see. probably the right word for it in retrospect Got but it. I think there's, I think there's a lot of debate around workspaces
0: yeah we're all figuring it out I suppose as we go along Thanks, um, Aparna, for playing along. Um, I'm towards the end of my uh, questions. Any, Any closing thoughts or closing comments that you want to add before I let you go?
1: Well, I mean, if I can make a pitch, I would say that I would love to connect with people who are interested in doing something interesting around workplace mental health. I think that's, you know, it it ties into two of my big areas of interest, right? I've written about workplaces for the last 20 odd years. I've been living with a mental health condition for the last 20 years. So I'm very, I think that this could be a new frontier for how we think about it. And rather than waiting for it to become a big thing overseas and then come and do it, it'd be nice, like, if we actually you know, took up that gauntlet and and did something about that. So, wonderful.
0: And I'll vouch for that. Aparna is very approachable. So please feel free to reach out. Uh, What's the best way to reach you uh, for my listeners?
1: Well, they could just write to me at chemicalkitchery at gmail.com. Okay. So they can find me on socials. I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram mainly. So they can always DM me
0: there. Fantastic. Thank you, Aparna. It's been a real pleasure having you. Thanks for spending the time.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It was great fun.
0: I came away from this conversation with some really powerful reflections. How do we normalize mental health at work? Well-being and performance need not be at odds with each other. The what of leadership may not have shifted, but the next generation can really help redefine the how. Until next time, I hope this episode helps you reflect on empathy, office design, and the impact it can have on workplace culture.